Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Hemant Mehta. This is Jessica Blumke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. Jessica recently attended The Amazing Meeting, a skeptics conference in Las Vegas, where she had the chance to talk to a number of amazing people. For this episode, I was joined by Skeptics Guide to the Universe host and neuroscientist Stephen Novella and magician John Armstrong. We spoke about this year's TAM theme of skepticism in the brain, how faulty your memories are, and how the placebo effect is not what you may think. Welcome to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This is Jessica Blinke. I'm coming to you from TAM 2014, and today I am joined by... Hi, this is Stephen Novella from the Skeptics Guide to the Universe. And I'm John Armstrong from my mother, I guess. (laughs) Well, John is a magician. I am a magician. He has credentials. He won an award once. I did win an award once. Yep. And that's all we'll say about that. Yeah, I'm close to Magician of the Year. Um, right. So, um, so anyway, we're here at TAM, and it's all about skepticism in the brain. Um, what, you know, what, why it makes that a compelling um, subject matter for an entire conference to revolve around just the physics, of, you know, the physical physicality of the brain. Yeah, I mean, it's almost redundant in my right. opinion. You know, you know, skepticism, critical thinking. For me, I'm a, you know, obviously I'm a neuroscientist, mm-hmm. but it, it's all about how our brains work. It's understanding. You know, cognition, how we think about things, why we believe things. Ultimately, it's all about how the brain functions. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a natural combination. Obviously, you know, you can focus specifically on neuroscientific topics at the conference. Right. Um, you know, hence the theme. But it is every year it's skepticism in the brain to some extent because it's right. part and parcel mm-hmm. of critical thinking. That would, that would make a lot of sense. I, I, I was curious, like the. Uh, the things that were amazing to me were the the, the false memory stuff that that someone was speaking about uh, yesterday. Yeah, yeah lots. It was it was, it was incredible to me because I've never really thought about that. And as far as like how the mind works in that way, in which you could just totally, completely believe that something has happened when it's obviously not happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that's um, in, in my opinion one realization that. Like somebody who is a skeptical, critical thinker has, to some extent, wrapped their head around, but like the average person may not. Right. And if I try to like have people walk away with just one thing, understand, really understanding one thing, is that you know everything you think, feel, believe, remember, perceive is a constructed fiction of your brain. Everything, right. and you know it could break down in multiple different ways. And just so you bring up the uh, the notion of false memory, every memory is kind of a false memory in that it's. 
not a, a, any kind of direct recording of what actually happened. Your brain constructed that memory, right? And multiple things went into that. And then every time you remember it, it reconstructs the memory and it updates the memory f- from with what you've learned since then and what you've come to believe since then. And so it's just a it's an endless process of just reconstructing this narrative fiction that has only an indirect relationship to something that actually happened in the past. Right. So. But we, but we don't. It's seamless to us. We don't perceive that. To us, it's just a memory, and every memory is just a memory. And our confidence doesn't even predict anything about the accuracy of those memories. But if you could really wrap your head around that, that takes care of a lot of nonsense, in my opinion. Right. You know, it's funny. It's like as a because I am far from a neuroscientist. Uh, I do card tricks. Uh, <laughs> you know, for a living. And so you've read, of course, the you know the. the Neuroscience of Magic. Yeah, yeah, I have read that book, and I'm actually slight of mind. I'm yeah. quite skeptical of that book. Completely honest. Um, as a magician, I look at that and go, eh, I don't think they actually had it right. Like mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, there's not like the way that they're trying to come, uh, say that magic works on the brain. I don't think that's how it works at all. In fact, I think they their studies were far from completely mm-hmm. scientific or controlled, especially when it came to uh, the one thing where um, they showed. Uh, Matt King uh, doing this coin vanish and that the mind would follow it no matter what. It's not true. Just He just does that move just so much better than anybody else that if they would have found someone who did it just like adequately, I don't think they would have gotten the exact same results. Yeah, that's interesting. So you, yeah, if you may, maybe you might be better off studying mediocre magicians than the best magicians yeah. and trying to deconstruct neurologically what's happening. Well, especially where the, where the eye's going and the yeah. mind's going and how that actually you know, plays. Uh, and and so yeah, so I read that book, and I'm actually I, I find the whole thing not very believable at all, honestly. But um, as a non uh, neuroscientist, well, the thing I kind of came from this conference, what I've learned so far, which I think is kind of cool, is that it seems like I mean, when it comes to memory, at least you're just remembering the last time you remembered that thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like you're just kind of constantly building on that same. It's almost like a game of telephone in yeah, your own head. It's an internal game of telephone. Yeah, exactly. and that's yeah. that's amazing to me. Right, and there's multiple. It's, it's a, yeah, it's it's even worse than that because there's all sorts of ways in which it can get contaminated. You know, like if I tell you something, you would just incorporate that into your memory and and just becomes part of your memory. Um, or you know, people could actually shift a memory of something happening to somebody else and remember it as if it happened to them. Right. And you can actually change the subject of your memory, or you can fuse two memories entirely. It's like. You mix half of the previous game of telephone with your current you know, game of telephone, just fuse them together and create something entirely new or just shift the details around. But it, another way to look at it, again, that's sort of the bottom line uh, notions I'd like people to walk away with. One is that what you remember, think, believe is a narrative. It's a story that you tell yourself. Right. And that story is actually more important than any of the details that go into the story. The details are malleable. Your brain will happily shift them around just to make sure that the narrative is nice, one little nice seamless narrative. Um, so the, when you want to know what's actually true, what's actually happened, you have to kind of deconstruct that, you know, that narrative. And you also need to go to objective sources of information, external objective sources. That's science, right? That's right. why we and have science. science. Otherwise, we're the slave to whatever narrative we're telling ourselves that day. But do people have, people I'm sure have a hard time believing that, like, you have to think you can trust your own brain. Yeah. And 
do you find people aren't struggle or they don't believe you? Like, no, I remember things fine. Yeah, I think they compartmentalize. I mean, so like if you show people an optical illusion that completely blows their mind, they're like, whoa, you know, that totally blew my mind. It's like, yeah, that's everything. Everything is an, is an illusion. <laughs> but they just have a hard time extrapolating to like their everyday life. Yeah. And so you have, that's the leap you got to make them. So sometimes I tell people, I right, think of your fondest childhood memory. It's almost certainly entirely wrong. In a fiction, and they just uh, they you know they can intellectually maybe understand that, yeah. but they don't internalize that lesson mm-hmm. and like really live it. That's and that's it's not like a totally black or white thing. That's a lifelong quest to try to really internalize those lessons and really understand, you know, how, how fallible our minds are in all the various ways mm-hmm. and what you have to do, the process you have to go through mm-hmm. to actually know something somewhat reliably. Yeah. I know. Do you find? I don't know, I feel like I kind of have an understanding of like how the mechanics of a sleight of hand trick work. Really? But I still see it. Really? I, I have <laughs> a basic understanding really? of things. Sure. Uh, the basic understanding is uh, there Hold must on. be something he did there thing that thing. Yep. Yeah. 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 That's is that not is that not it? <laughs> that, yeah. It's a little more complicated. It's a trick. It is a trick. I'm yeah. pretty sure it's a trick. It's very much a trick. I'm very open about that. Like he, when I perform, that's how I perform. I'm not like I don't disclaim it or anything. Yeah. I'm, but I mean, I'm I'm very open about the fact that this is just sleight of hand, like live special effects. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm very open about that. Um, but what were, what were you trying to say when I interrupted you so rudely? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Nobody knows for sure what I was trying to say. Yeah. Um, Oh, and even if I like objectively probably know how you did it, I still see it, the thing disappear, and I'm still blown away by it. What is it about like I know what I'm supposed to be looking for, but I still I guess you're just that good, huh? Uh, I I don't know, and it's kind of funny. It's like I I, I feel like uh, after what uh, you just said that maybe I've lived my entire life uh, and got credit for a bunch of stuff that doesn't really it's not me. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, like you're just saying, like everything is is that you know. Mm-hmm. Here's a magic trick, boom, that blew your mind. Now everything is uh, is maybe I'm a fraud. Like the whole thing, like <laughs> it's just why I brought you here today. exactly. This is an intervention. Uh, <laughs> you need to stop. Um, but like that's amazing to me. Like I never even thought about the idea that you know that everything. Uh, that you know, yes, you're constantly fooling yourself yeah. over and over again all the time. Yeah, and I'm just basically. A cat- I mean, what I do is just more of a catalyst towards that. Right, you know? you're just exploiting some of the yeah. foibles of how you're. You're a, 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 a three dimensional optical illusion in a way. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So the other the other point um, that I was going to make now that I forgot was uh, oh yeah, so the the brain uh, and there's there's recent um, neuropsychological tests that demonstrate this that it. Our brains evolved to prioritize this seamless narrative, and that what that means is it'll take it takes all this disparate information, multiple sensory streams, and our internal model of reality, and it compares it all, and then it will freely make any adjustments necessary to make it all seamless. The seamlessness is is important to our brain. The details are not. So I think a lot of magic may derive from that. Is that you're sort of you're creating this scenario, and the brain is going to make it sort of all flow together. And it'll if it has to change details to make it seem to flow together, that's fine for for your brain's processing. And you're exploiting the the, the changing of those details, right. so that yeah, that it, you at the end you have this narrative that you can you sort of forced the construction of this fake narrative that serves your entertainment right. purposes. And that's, but that's how that's our everyday life. That's all of life is a magic trick in a way. Yeah, I, I've, sp- I've spent like a lot of time learning how to not only fool in the moment, 
but then to construct things so that when later on when re- be, they were remembering it, they remember it completely differently. Yeah, they remember that they remember, uh, even though I might have you had construct something, false memories. Yeah, I, I, tons of false memory stuff that I put yeah. into what's going on. Uh, it, it, I've always I've always enjoyed that in, in a weird sort of manipulative way. Um, but um, I guess is that the same when you're saying about the. Um, about the our, our minds instructing the, you know to, to enforce for the narrative mm-hmm. that everything is, is it almost the same way how our eyes look at things because seeing yeah. things in the but we, we just kind of blend it together it's that exactly. weird exactly and, and it, is that on the same level as that or is that is that happening because of that or is that in, in, it's all part of the same thing yeah, so okay. if you look the visual system that's actually you know optical illusions and you know these um, the, these effects that I'm talking about as it applies to vision that's just the easiest thing to conceptualize um, so like for optical illusions your brain constructs an image that's meaningful to you. It emphasizes things that are important to you. It de-emphasizes things that are irrelevant. It's making those choices in real time all the time. Right. Um, and then you can use an optical illusion, just exploiting that to create a funny effect. Uh, but so that's just that's just an analogy. That's that's true for vision in an obvious way, but it's true for everything else as well. Everything else that you think, remember, feel, all your other sensory streams. You know, not just vision. It's just easiest to demonstrate with vision. So, if like for example, with again with vision. Um, you only really have clear vision for a very small area right in your phobia, right? Right, right in your focus. Everything else is blurry, but you don't perceive that you're constantly seeing blurry vision because your brain stitches it all together so it seems right. Uh, also, like when you move your eyes, your, it'll, your brain will sort of edit out the, the jump. Yeah. And, it, and that, those are just the most obvious things. It also edits out the blind spot, and um, it also will... will Change what you think you see so that things are smooth and not jumpy, and so it actually like de-emphasizes certain details, or it averages out details over time as well. Right. Um, so that was a recent study that showed that. So that averaging out is probably to keep the world from seeming jumpy and changing and all everything. So this seamlessness seems to have the highest priority for our brain's construction of our experience of reality, and that's where all the illusions and all of the, the, the things come into play. Yeah. It must. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's mind blowing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. How do memory? uh, How are memories or forming memories affected by your emotional state? Like, if you if you are in a heightened emotional state and angry or scared or whatever, does that make your memory better or worse? Uh, It depends. So, generally speaking, um, you know, highly emotionally charged situations can put you in a heightened sense of alertness. So Mm -hmm. then you start paying attention, and you can they can create more vivid memories. At the same time, they could distract you right. from things, right? So, um, so the, the short answer is it depends. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's like hypnosis. No, not, like, not like stage hypnosis. I don't know if you do that as part of your act. No, no. Yeah. But um, psychologists actually, there's a sort of a working definition of hypnosis that psychologists are talking about when they're doing certain experiments. But actually, hypnosis is a state of heightened alertness. It's not a trance. It's the exact opposite. You're actually much more alert and attentive in a hypnotic state. The, the idea is that in that state, it's, it's what the hypnotist is manipulating is what you're attending to. So if you're highly focused, like, um, then it's easy to slip things past the goalpost, in other words. So, if, for example, like you could have a, your t- attention diffusely focused on a bunch of different things. Like, I'm going to pay attention to anything weird happening in my environment around me. Mm-hmm. Or you can intensely focus on one thing. But if you do that, you're going to miss everything happening around you. So, and there's everything in between. So in a, hip, like a hypnotic state, you end up focusing, you narrow down your focus so that you could slip things past that you don't notice, but your brain still got that information. Uh-huh. 
So that's the post-hypnotic suggestion idea. And, and that, you know, there's actually psychological studies that support that something like that's happening. But it's just all exploiting the vagaries of how we pay attention. Because mm-hmm. that's another neurological phenomenon that is, it's a trade-off and it's flawed. You know, you have to attend to some things and not others. And that changes from moment to moment. And actually your brain is spending a lot of energy calculating what you should pay attention to. You know, that's actually a highly demanding thing that your brain does. So, so hypnosis is a real... It's a thing. It's yeah. a real thing. Yeah. But don't yeah, think I have, I have a hard time. I see. I, I was. I was always had a hard time with that, mostly because of stage hypnosis. The stage right, hypnosis right, is totally different, different, and it's and it's just and that's just power suggestion. That's well, yeah. It's it's social pressure. People just go with yeah, a lot compliance. of clients. People do what they think they're supposed to do. But do and, people really sincere? Like I did a stage. I got hypnotized one time, and I was like, "This is stupid." I'm just like, I know that's they want me to pat my head, so I'm going to. And I yeah. never, for a moment, thought I was actually hypnotized. But do people think they were? Or are they all, like, knowingly going along with... Well, how do you know? How do you know? I, I could know. tell you that what they say they think, but I don't know what they actually yeah, think. Yeah, and, and, and then it's the general levels. So you really question them afterwards. They would, mm-hmm. Someone would say, yeah, I know, I was just playing along. Yeah. Or, I don't know, I felt like I should just do it. Yeah. And, then, and then that right there, I felt like I should do it. Oh, you were hypnotized. Yeah. You know? Right. And so it's pretty much, if you think about it, I just said the same thing twice. Then I wonder yeah. what they'll say a year later. Their memory of it may morph into, I had no control over what I was doing. Who knows? I mean, so that just led, adds to the legend, you know? Yeah. So you're manipulating the memory of what happened as well as the experience of what happened. So is, so uh, say, uh, hypnosis for the term, I want to quit smoking. Say, yeah. And doesn't work. It doesn't work. No. Is, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that answers my question. Yeah. So, I mean, so now you're getting to a separate area, which is the clinical applications of hypnosis, okay. where that's a, there's a separate literature. So there's psychologists use it just to try to understand things like attention. Uh-huh. Hip, you know, entertainers might use it on the stage, but you can also then ask, well, can we use it for specific clinical outcomes? Mm-hmm. Um, things like long-term change of behavior, it's not really very effective. It's actually pretty good for things like pain, because pain is all about attention. Right. And so that the hypnosis is all about attention. So if you could divert your attention from your pain, mm-hmm. it helps, you know. So that's where it's useful, because things that directly derive from attention. Right. And that is a good segue to, uh, you were on a panel the other day, and you were talking about the placebo effect. And I thought that was really interesting, because clearly, I did not know what placebo effect yeah. was. Nobody I, does. That's okay. Don't worry about it. That's okay. It. Can yeah. you kind of give a breakdown about how very wrong I was? Not me personally, but... Well, it's there, there are multiple placebo effects, uh-huh. meaning anything that makes you think like you had a positive response to a treatment, mm. but other than, a, than an actual like physiological response to an active intervention, right? Mm. So actually some changing your biology, everything else is, pl- is placebo effects. Um, <clears throat> so it's lots of things. Mm-hmm. It's things like regression to the mean, meaning that you take a pill whenever you're at your most sick state, well, where are you going to go from there? You can only get better, if you, by definition. Or you know. Die. Yeah, if you well, if you, if you have like a variable chronic illness where you have good days and bad days, you take a treatment on a bad day, you know, you, a good day is going to follow eventually. Right. Right. Um, so that's that creates the illusion that the treatment works. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also just uh, you know the just hope, and you know you, the hope of being treated makes you feel better, and then maybe you know the emotional state dramatically affects your perception and memory of your pain, mm-hmm. so that will make you feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's sort of what we call the non-specific therapeutic effects, meaning just just being in a doctor's office and paying attention to your health is going to have some indirect health effects. You're going to maybe take better care of yourself in right. other ways, maybe be more compliant with your medication, all those kind of things. So just being in a clinical trial makes you better mm-hmm. That in all these non-specific ways. Those get measured as placebo effects. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But when you ask people what's a placebo effect, they'll say it's mind over matter. It's right. your belief in the treatment actually healing you, and that's actually not what it is. Right. If there is any of that effect, no one's been able to really measure it in any significant way. It's, so the, the, the placebo effects all seem to be subjective and transient, not a real biological effect. Well, and you mentioned that it's, it tends to be more effective for pain because pain is all mental. Pain's all subjective anyway. It's yeah. just what you're experiencing. And what's interesting that people don't realize there's really two components to pain, and this is true not just psychologically but neurologically. There's actually mm -hmm. two different, different pain pathways, different parts of your brain mm -hmm. processing the information. There's just, like, where in my body is the pain coming from and... You know, what does the pain feel like? And then there's the emotional component of pain. Because think about this. This is kind of mind-blowing. Why does pain hurt? Why does it hurt? Why is, There's nothing inherent about the sensation that is negative. It hurts because your brain tells you that it hurts. Because it goes into that part of your brain that assigns a negative emotional response to it. And there are, in fact, drugs that can cut off that component of pain. That's how narcotics actually primarily work. They work in the brain. So you can actually get to a certain dose in, in, with patients of narcotics where they still feel the pain, but it just doesn't bother them. It's not painful. Interesting. They have, yep, my leg hurts just as much, but it just doesn't bother me anymore. There's no, there's no emotional connection to the pain. It's all just stuff happening in your brain. And, and, and when you also think about it evolutionarily and just, you know, adaptationally, what's the purpose of pain? It's to affect your behavior. Mm. But there's a lot of context for pain. So, what if you're being chased by the tiger? That's like the classic evolutionary example. You're always being chased by a tiger. There's always a tiger in there somewhere, right? <laughs> so, okay, if you have pain when you're being chased by a tiger, it's more important for you to get away from the tiger than right. to attend to the pain. So, you've got to suppress the pain mm -hmm. during those kind of situations. So, just as one example, the pain, there's a context to pain. Mm -hmm. And so, sure, there's all kinds of ways to modify at multiple different levels your experience of the pain. It's all built into the system because that's what pain is all about, affecting your behavior in, for the for the given context, and so yeah, so the, so that's the most amenable thing to placebo effects because it's really just exploiting all of the inherent, you know, systems that are there to manipulate how much the pain's bothering you. Mm -hmm. So because that's what it's for to bother you and affect your behavior. That's really really interesting and yeah. mind blowing. Um, so I, in my experience, I I have a lot of friends who are not religious who aren't into war things like that, but for some reason, medicine seems to be the one thing that they will be fooled by it. Like, my coworker brought, she was getting sick, and she got airborne. And I was like, you know, that doesn't do anything, right? She's like, I know, but it makes me feel better. And she was complaining about how expensive it was. And I was like, well, it, it's really expensive because it's nothing. Yeah, right? it's vitamins. It's vitamins. Yeah, it's fine. But, I mean, it certainly isn't going to heal her in no. the way that she thinks it's There's going nothing. to. So what is it about, even though, like, objectively people say, like, I know X, Y, Z doesn't work, but this makes me feel better. Why, why do people play the lottery when they know they're not going to win? Right. It's, you know, there are times when people focus on the, the potential for the good outcome, mm -hmm. you know. And other times people tend to be risk-averse, and psychologists are spending a lot of time trying to figure that out like mm -hmm. when are people risk averse and when do they go for the false hope mm -hmm. and it, I, don't, I don't have any way of encapsulating all that but in medicine people do both they sort of avoid things that probably they don't need to avoid like the vaccines and autism right. it's really easy to scare people about certain things mm -hmm. and they don't want to do anything that will directly harm them but then if you hold out the possibility of hope to them they'll take it especially if they think there's no harm so that's the old, ah, what's the harm? It might help. You can get people to do anything if you yeah. convince them of those two things. Um, be, right? Cause it, and it kind of yeah. makes rational sense in a way. But it, the, the thing like with airborne is like, well, there's, it's not harmless. 
you're wasting money, you're wasting time and attention and resources. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you take it as directed, you're overdosing on vitamin A. So you can't assume there isn't even any no harm to it. Oh. They actually have, I don't know if they've changed it recently, but last time we looked at it, the actual recommended dose would actually overdose you on vitamin A. So it's not, we can't assume these things are harmless. But, you know, it's also, these are, this is sophisticated. I mean, you need a, a medical education to really, really right. understand this. So they're exploiting scientific illiteracy or just being not an expert and desperation and everyone wants to live forever so it's really easy yeah. targets yeah and not to not to pile on airborne but that it might have been in your uh, panel they're talking about their big cell is created by a second grade teacher yeah. and for some reason mm-hmm. that's better than created by a doctor who yeah. understands medicine and your body and what is it that what is it about people who that's that's a benefit to them. Like, oh, the second grade teacher created yeah. it. That's for me. Well, is the every man effect? So like they feel like they can relate to it because see, it's not some some doctor. I uh, see this was created by someone like me, who's right. just a regular average Joe, uh, and or well, this person is around children all the time. Kids have big germs. Then obviously this is. That, that that must work because of of that. Yeah, it's kind of it's a false argument from authority. You yeah, know, they're 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 referring to some authority, but it's not really an appropriate one. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, what, you know why the school teacher why that resonates with people. Maybe that we're all still are indoctrinated as kids to respect teachers as authorities, and it's uh-huh. hearkening back to that. You know, so yeah. I don't know, but uh, it's obviously worked. It's good marketing. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm not sure. I'd completely blanked on the question that I was going to ask you guys. Oh. So I'm nailing this. Uh, I, I really like barbecue. It's yes. what, uh, editing and post-production. Yeah. Fix and post. post. Fix and post, yeah. It's um, so what was the subject of your talk that you did? So I, the, my talk had two purposes. It was One was to just help patients communicate with physicians by understanding how we think a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And the other part was to, to highlight some critical thinking rules and mm-hmm. show how it applies to in a medical context, but mm-hmm. it also applies in your everyday life mm-hmm. as well. So, you know, I talked about the fact that um, you know, people often assume, it's what I call the Dr. House syndrome, that if you are ill, mm-hmm. that there's two things that are going to happen. Either you get a diagnosis and you get better, or you don't get a diagnosis and you don't get better. Mm-hmm. So people become obsessed with getting the, di- the diagnosis. Now, sure, there's lots of times when that does happen. Those are, those are two pathways that can happen, but they're not the only two. Mm-hmm. And but because people think they're the only two, they get they focus way too much on just continually getting the million dollar workup and seeing more experts and more experts until they get their magic diagnosis. Then they'll be better. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, sometimes it's okay not to have a diagnosis. Sometimes the other pathway of we've ruled everything out. Mm-hmm. We know there's nothing horrible wrong. Now we could focus on your quality of life and your symptoms and your lifestyle and mm-hmm. the stuff that we can do something about. That's okay. Mm-hmm. That's a perfectly reasonable pathway. And you want to be there because mm-hmm. you don't want to have the horrible things that we're ruling out just mm-hmm. to have a label for it. Right. Sometimes not knowing is better than knowing it's something horrible. Mm-hmm. But it's amazing how that doesn't sit well with people. The, the not knowing bothers them more. You know, of course, that would immediately flip if they got diagnosed with a brain tumor. But that, that's not what they're. But before that happens, they're thinking this: the not knowing is just horrible. Yeah. And and they're suffering, and they want they they're just desperate for the path out, and they think that's the path out. So, um, there's also hoping that they're just they're just hoping that it's going to be something much curable, le- curable yeah. and yeah. Le- yeah. and lesser than a brain tumor. Yeah. 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 But again, that's also they're kind of compartmentalizing. I think too, they're thinking, what's the pathway of me getting better? A curable diagnosis that gets cured. Right. So they, the, the lack of a diagnosis becomes really upsetting to them. But there's also the cure, the diagnosis that's not curable. You, you ruling that out's really good. And then there's the there's no diagnosis, 
um, or there's because we can't find any pathology. Mm. So, but we'll just treat your symptoms. But, and I think people have been indoctrinated against that as if it's like there's something wrong with that. But yeah. it's fine. And so that's actually a pretty good pathway to be in. And that indoctrination you just kind of talked of. Do you think? Literally, like shows like Doctor House, these kind of medical shows are pointing people in the wrong direction. Well, I mean, because every show is the same narrative, right? You know, and that narrative is person is getting worse, nobody can make the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Doctor House makes the magical diagnosis and then cures a patient. It's never lupus. It, yeah, it's right. It's never one lupus. time it was lupus. It was <laughs> so the other thing that they get wrong is they take a very linear approach to it because that's the you need that for the storytelling. Mm-hmm. In reality, we just test everything up front, you know. So yeah, it's okay. it doesn't. Um, Really, like, yeah, I mean, I've watched episodes where it's like, you know, like he thinks this is the diagnosis, so let's like test just for this hypothesis, which of course is not what you're supposed to do, mm-hmm. or let's treat based upon this working diagnosis rather than a differential diagnosis where, mm-hmm. all right, these are the most likely things, but these are the progressively less likely things, and this is all the things we're going to test for. You kind of do that up, up front, but of mm-hmm. course, then it's a one act, you know, right. play, not a three act play, but. Um, so they sacrifice any kind of real understanding of how clinical decision-making works for the narrative that works in a drama, but unfortunately then people walk away thinking this is how medicine works. Right. And part of my talk was to try to show them that that's not the case. Yeah. Well, and it's been a double-edged sword, hasn't it, um, right, with the advent of the Internet? I'm not sure if you're familiar. No, um, I've heard of it, yeah. Yeah, it's passing fad. Um, so now everybody has all of these, you know, has access to ostensibly all of the answers. Yeah. It's and, all there. And WebMD and all of that. But and so in theory it's good. Like people have more information. But how does that I mean I'm sure that's tricky on you guys when they come in and say, Well, I did my research and I know that XYZ means I have lupus, so let's do that. Yeah. Yeah, that absolutely. So sometimes it's good. Sometimes patients come in already with a lot of very focused questions mm-hmm. and they've already done a lot of, of good and helpful background research mm-hmm. if they've gone to good sites, you know. Then sometimes at the other end of the spectrum, they come in with a stack of papers and a diagnosis, and they want me to just enact their diagnosis, or they are, are significantly kibitzing. And then I have to spend time undoing all the in misinformation that they've been crammed right. with. Uh, so then it becomes counterproductive. Mm-hmm. So and there's everything in between. So, but you know, it's, I don't know how you can get the good without the bad. Yeah. You know, it's just a, you want to educate the public about how to find reliable sources of information on the internet. Mm-hmm. Usually, like for, for shits and giggles, I'll look up medical terms on Google, and usually the first page or two are filled with nonsense, yeah. you know, usually. Um, and maybe in there will be like a science-based medicine article, I'm always happy about that. Although I, I understand that my own searches get contaminated by my own, you know what I mean? Yeah, it, yeah, it follows yeah. my profile, so I, I'd have to go to a clean computer to mm-hmm. really know what other people will find. Um, but anyway, and then sometimes there are like academic sites which are more reliable, and that's been studied. They're actually they're, they are more reliable, mm-hmm. um, like WebMD you mentioned. But there might be like the University of whatever their department put a page together on this mm-hmm. disease that they treat, and you, usually the information there is good, except when you get to controversial stuff, and then it kind of falls off the rails. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to. It's hard. You know, it's, it's hard. We actually give like a whole seminar on science based medicine on just how to find good information on the internet because yeah. it's tricky, yeah. and. It's a skill set that people really need to develop. It's a life skill now. You know, right. getting good information off the internet's a life skill. Mm-hmm. And isn't there a logical fallacy that uh, I don't know the name of that is when you find the first information you find, you kind of cling to, even if you find new. Inf- so if I went online on WebMD and I'm like, I'm sure it's this, even though you, my doctor, are yeah. saying no, 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 it's this. 
I'm clinging to. Yeah, you kind of you, you're biased towards um, the first thing that you find. Right. Yeah, from the first belief. Once you settle on a belief, you absolutely then nest there and uh-huh. defend it. So, and you become biased towards that. Your whatever decisions you've already made, right. like you're just justifying your your beliefs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, we just hit a half hour. So quickly, can how can people follow you or get a hold of both of you if need be? Um, I'm on uh, Twitter at uh, Cardjohn, C-A-R-D-J-O-N, mm-hmm. so at Cardjohn, you can follow me there. Okay. Just go to theskepticsguide.org, you can get to our social media empire through that portal. Okay, sounds good. Thank you both so much for joining me, and uh, thank you. Um, you can find Friendly Atheist at FriendlyAtheist.com, and thank you so much for coming by. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. Our theme song was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. And thanks to Michael Greif for helping us with the on-site recording. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man-T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blimke. We hope you join us next time. 